0: today's Read Aloud, we have Dr. Sharon Davies from the uh, Law, uh, College of Law, Moritz College of Law. She is the John C. Elam Royer Sater, worry Sater's designated professor of law, which I can almost say, uh, it, which is quite a distinguished honor. Um, she graduated from Columbia University and worked as an associate attorney for Steptoe and Johnston in, uh, Johnson in Washington, D.C., and then for Lord Day and Lord Barrett Smith in New York City. Uh, after that, she served for five years as an assistant United States attorney in the criminal division of the United States Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, which is widely thought to be the premier U.S. attorney's office in the country. She joined us here at, at OSU in 1995. She's a full professor, and her research focus has been in the area of criminal law and procedure. And this particular book that she's going to read today, read about, read from, um, is related to that. And I'll let her take over and tell you all about it. Thank you.
1: Thanks. You. Uh, thanks to everybody for coming out on a cold winter day like like today. But what better than to sit by a fire and talk about uh, your own work? This is uh, this is a uh, a real uh, privilege for me. So uh, I, I invite everybody who's sitting towards the back to come on up closer to the fire and and, and be comfortable if you if you like, because uh, there are extra seats uh, up here. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background uh, about this story before I uh, read to you from from the book. Uh, as Ruth said, I am a law professor, and this kind of writing is actually very unusual for a law professor. Uh, a, law professors, uh, you may know, uh, tend to publish primarily in law journals, uh, short, relatively short articles uh, on discrete issues of law uh, that interests us, uh, generally we speak to other law professors, uh, some lawyers, uh, judges, uh, but usually that narrow of an audience, uh, a, uh, a, a group of, of legal thinkers primarily. Uh, but uh, when I uh, discovered the story that this book it re- recounts, uh, I decided to do something that was very different a law professor and that was to write this book in the narrative um, almost the way that a novel would read although i assure you that it nonfiction; every word of it is true and that is actually kind of amazing given what this story is is about turns out i learned from this story that that uh, truth sometimes is uh, stranger than fiction uh, and there were points uh, when I was uh, learning about the story and then uh, writing about this story where I, I would just be shaking my head in disbelief because it seemed like it had to be made up. So many things in, in, in it were, uh, were really, truly amazing, uh, but also reflective uh, of who we were uh, as a nation when this story occurred back in Birmingham, Alabama in 1921. So uh, let me give you a little bit of a background about, uh, about the, the story itself so that the passages that I read to you uh, will make uh, a little bit of sense. Uh, the, book, the book itself opens uh, on August 11th, 1921, hot summer day when two people uh, decided to get married. The couple uh, uh, were Ruth Stevenson, who was an 18-year-old girl, and uh, her uh, fiance, Pedro Guzman, uh, who uh, was a wallpaper hanger. He hung a wallpaper for a living in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, He was older than Ruth uh, by, uh, well, about 15 years or so. Uh, and uh, he had a reputation for being a very hard worker. He was well-liked in, in um, Birmingham. But he was also Catholic. And he was Puerto Rican. Uh, he had been in, uh, in, in Birmingham, Alabama for about 13 years by this point. Uh, and so this was his, his home. Uh, but he was a, he was a native of Puerto Rico. He came into to the United States when he was about 18 so these, these two de- decided to get married um, in, in August of 1921, and they married in stealth. Uh, they slipped away from their jobs in the middle of a, a, this day. And um, they uh, left Birmingham and went to uh, a nearby town called Bessemer, Alabama. Uh, they, they did that because they didn't want to run into uh, anyone who knew Ruth uh, who might asked some questions about what they were doing together, uh, uh, particularly Ruth's father, uh, who was a Methodist minister named Reverend uh, Edwin Stevenson. Uh, The reason why they particularly wanted to avoid Ruth's father, uh, and her mother for that matter, was because the two of them knew that her parents would not approve of them getting married. Uh, So uh, they slipped away in the middle of this day. Now, a little bit of, of background about the resistance that the Stevenson's, Ruth's parents uh, would have had to their marriage. Um, you might think, as I thought originally when I heard, I first heard about this story, that it centered around Pedro's race or ethnicity, uh, the fact that he was Puerto Rican and she was not. Uh, but but uh, it turns out that the... Resistance that Reverend Edwin Stevenson and his wife Mary had to their marriage had more to do with Pedro's religion, Catholicism, than anything else. Uh, Reverend Edwin Stevenson and his wife were rabidly anti-Catholic. I think it is fair to say that, uh, and uh, and they weren't alone. They had lots of company at that time. There was a very powerful wave of anti-Catholicism that gripped the many in the United States. Uh, and that anti-Catholicism was reflected not just in the events of this day, but in, um, in uh, many things that uh, preceded it, uh, including the fact that during this period of, of time, enormously popular newsletters, anti-Catholic newsletters, could be bought at any newsstand, right along with all the newspapers of of the day, the most popular newspapers of the day. Uh, And uh, including the fact that this was a period of time when the Ku Klux Klan had, uh, the second Klan, now not the Klan of Reconstruction days, but the second Ku Ku Klux Klan had expanded its targets uh, to include Catholics, Jews, immigrants generally, uh, along with Uh, And so uh, this was a time when fraternal organizations, secret fraternal organizations like the Klan and many others, had a very powerful um, anti-Catholic bent to them. Uh, That was true uh, on the day that these two decided to get married, and, and it figured significantly into this story because as it turned out, Reverend Edwin Stevenson, Ruth's father, was a Klansman. That was not particularly unusual for, uh, for men uh, uh, in his uh, community at this time. This was not like the first Klan of Reconstruction days. This was the second Klan that was um, easily the most popular clan in American history. The reason why it was so popular and was able to attract men like Reverend Edmund Stevenson into its ranks was because it had expanded its targets and it had rebranded itself as a patriotic fraternal organization, an organization of patriots. And by doing that, it was able to attract what Klan scholars tell us were the best men in town. And what that meant was doctors, lawyers, judges, law enforcement officers in great numbers, and men of the clergy, the Protestant clergy, like Reverend Edmund Stevenson. So it turns out that Edmund Stevenson's membership in the Ku Klux Klan was not aberrational. It was typical uh, of, uh, of this this time, and that would play a role uh, in the events of this, of this story. So, um, uh, So let me read you uh, a passage uh, from this that talks a little bit about what happened on that day when Ruth and Pedro uh, decided uh, to uh, run off uh, from their jobs and get married. Ruth and Pedro had agreed to make August 11, 1921 look like a normal work day. They had agreed to meet at noon with a plan to take the streetcar to Bessemer. Where they would apply for their license to avoid running into Ruth's father at the courthouse in Birmingham. But when the time came for Ruth to meet Pedro that day, and she moved toward the front door of the store where she worked, one of her uncles was just walking in. She was sure she would be caught, she said later, but by some act of heaven the man failed to see her, and Ruth willed her feet to keep moving until she reached the spot outside where Pedro was waiting. In Bessemer, they were nearly foiled again. After they had obtained their license from the probate judge, they walked a few blocks to the local Catholic church, St. Aloysius, and asked to speak with Father Callahan, its presiding priest. But the priest was out. He would not be back in time to perform their rites, they were told. How strange the things that can unravel a plan. The possibility that Father Callahan might be away had obviously not occurred to them. After formulating a secret meeting place, dodging Ruth's relative, a sidestep the place her father was most likely to be, and obtaining the state's official permission to wed, the last critical ingredient needed to accomplish their plan, a priest, was missing. It could not have been easy for the couple to decide to return to Birmingham. The Bessemer marriage license authorized any official pastor in the state to marry them, so if they could make it to St. Paul's unseen, they could ask Father Coyle for his help. But the rectory of of St. Paul's was terrifyingly close to the courthouse, where Ruth's father conducted marriages in the hallways. If Stevenson happened to step outside as they were approaching the rectory, all would be lost. Worse, had Ruth and Pedro known the full truth, that Edwin Stevenson was already on the lookout for his daughter, that he had been canvassing the streets all afternoon, that he and Mary Stevenson had alerted the police there and a private detective as well, all of whom were making efforts to find the girl, the prospect of returning to the city would likely have been unthinkable. But the couple labored under that great advantage of ignorance and being unaware of the determined multiplicity of efforts already underway in the city to discover her, Ruth and Pedro resolved to double back to Birmingham to be married at St. Paul's. And somehow they managed it. When the streetcar arrived back in the city, Pedro and Bruce stepped off it and moved toward the towering twin steeples that guarded the entrance of St. Paul's. The bustle of the downtown streets must have conferred some soothing, genetic cover, helping them pass undetected, even across 3rd Avenue and straight up the walkway to the rectory door. But there, luck failed them again. Father Coyle was out. Father Brady told him. He was visiting with Father Malone at the rebuilt St. Catherine's Church in nearby Pratt City, and Ruth and Pedro had posted no bans at St. Paul's announcing their plans to marry in advance, so by church rule, only its presiding priest, Father Coyle, possessed the authority to take their vows. It might have seemed that heaven itself was testing their firmness, Later, no doubt, with the maddening benefit of hindsight, Father Brady must have wished that he had just sent the twosome away. But at that moment, as he looked at the couple standing on the threshold of the rectory, no doubt he read the desperation on their faces. The urge to assist them must have been strong. He could call St. Catharines to see if Father Quill could be reached, Father Brady offered. Ruth and Pedro said they would wait. So that's what happened uh, when they uh, ran away that day to to get married, and they did wait. And Father Coyle was reached by uh, his assistant pastor, Uh, and he did make it back into Birmingham in time to to marry the two of them. Now, Father James Coyle, who was the pride presiding priest of of St. Paul, was by this day, Easily the most famous Catholic in the state of Alabama at this time. Uh, he was famous because, unlike many other Catholics during this period who preferred to keep their heads low during this period of extreme anti Catholicism, Father James Clarke was different. He, uh, he became famous because he was willing to stand up in, in defense of his faith. And he wrote many, many letters to the editors of the local. Papers to uh, correct uh, errors that were being uh, said routinely about Catholics and, and his faith uh, in the community and uh, and elsewhere in the country. And because of that, uh, he uh, was was very visible uh, within the state. People knew him, and uh, and many people who were who took anti-Catholic uh, views uh, despised. him. So, later on uh, that day, not long after he took the vows of Ruth Stevenson and Pedro Guzman, uh, he, when he was sitting on the porch of the rectory and Ruth Stevenson's father walked up uh, to that porch, uh, the feeling that uh, Father Coyle must have had uh, about uh, his arrival, Stevenson's arrival must have been one of fear, But we can't know that for sure because of what would happen on, on uh, the, uh, the steps of uh, that porch. So let me uh, give you uh, uh, an idea of, uh, well let me just set this up and then I'll read you another passage that describes that, that moment. Uh, when Stevenson arrived at that porch, what happened there would be contested in months to come. Uh, but there were some things that were absolutely clear. One thing was that he arrived uh, carrying a loaded gun. Uh, he fired three shots from, those gun- from that gun, and one of his bullets um, entered the le- left temple of, of Father Koyal and quickly uh, led to his death that, that day. So let me read to this passage about who was around at the moment that those uh, shots were, were fired. Birmingham traffic officer W.L. Snow was standing in the middle of the intersection of 3rd Avenue and 21st Street, guiding traffic when he heard the shots. Even at that late hour, cars continued to choke the busy intersection, and Officer Snow was doing what he could to maintain order. Not long before, at the other end of the block, two cars had collided. Snow did not want the same thing to happen on his watch. The city government had responded to the growing traffic problems of Birmingham by adding police officers specifically assigned to traffic direction and control. In 1921, the city stationed 18 of those traffic officers at the busiest intersections of the downtown district. The measure was not a complete solution, but city officials hoped that it would provide relief to the most hopelessly congested areas. By the end of the decade, the numbers of traffic officers grew to nearly 60 as the glut of motor cars that clogged key downtown intersections reached a crisis level. The city's traffic code reflected the strain as well, growing heavier by the year, and including for the first time, provisions for one-way streets, new parking restrictions, speed limits, and restrictions on the popular jitney whose nimbleness made safety and congestion a constant concern. Without warning, the the sound of gunshots exploded around traffic officer Snow, drowning out the competing sounds of traffic. One shot, followed rapidly by another, a momentary pause, then a third, all from the direction of the Catholic church one block away. Officer Snow looked toward the church, confused, as a small flock of pigeons darted into the air and out of sight. Who would be shooting at pigeons, Officer Snow wondered, but when he heard a woman scream, he ran. Snow reached the front of the Jefferson County Courthouse in just a few seconds. Dick Gale, who was standing in the street, pointed wildly at the courthouse, shouting, there he goes. Dick had bolted after the shooter as soon as he stepped down from the porch and began to stride away. Dick reached this corner of the courthouse, just as the gunman turned inward along the building's east wall. Officer Snow came running from the opposite direction. Dick Gale gestured to the police officer to let him know that the retreating man had moved along the side of the courthouse. It must have been a relief to relinquish his pursuit. Unlike Dick Gale, the officer had a gun. If the shooter had any ideas of any more violence, at least it would be a fair fight. Still running, Officer Snow slid his gun from its holster, vaguely aware that another officer, Officer Weir, had fallen in behind him. The gunman, dressed in black, had climbed the stairs on the right side of the courthouse, turned a corner on the building, and moved out of sight. The, uh, the officers tore up the stairs, Officer Snow in the lead. When Snow reached the landing and rounded the corner, the man was jerking at the knob of a door it was locked. He turned back toward the officers, outnumbered and trapped. The man moved slowly then, as if aware that the officers might feel threatened by the gun he still gripped in his hand. But Snow had a wife and children at home, and he took no chances. He leveled his gun on the man's chest. That's all right, gentlemen, the gunman said evenly. I know what I'm doing. I want to be locked up. Put your gun down then, Snow replied coolly, keeping his gun squared at the man's chest. The gunman lowered his arm and Officer Weir stepped forward and pulled the gun from his hand while Officer Snow took hold of him. The prosecutor asked Snow later about the gun's caliber, but looking back through the haze of adrenaline, the officer could not be sure. Either a 38 or 45, he answered, uncertain. Definitely an automatic. The officer was sure of one thing. It was big, Snow remembered grimly. And so that gives you a little bit of a sense of who was around on Third Avenue when the fire, but the shots were, were fired. This was on a busy downtown street and there were many witnesses. And so you might think that that would mean that the, office, the prosecutor's later job of bringing Reverend Edmund Stevenson to justice for shooting Father James Coyle that day would be uh, a relatively easy test because there were many witnesses who came forward to t- tell the prosecutor what had happened, what they had seen, what they had heard uh, on, on that day. But almost immediately, it became clear that this case was going to be different from many of the other homicide cases that this prosecutor, a veteran prosecutor named Joe Tate, um, uh, had handled already in his career. Uh, Joe Tate uh, began to see signs right away uh, that uh, that uh, the case against Stevenson was going to be at least. Hotly contested. One of the earliest signs was that uh, the grand jury that Joe Tate asked to indict the case, to bring the formal charge against uh, Stevenson that was necessary even to bring him to trial, um, was uncharacteristically slow in responding to his request. Now, uh, that's a really unusual thing. Prosecutors don't normally have uh, trouble with grand juries, and, and one reason for that is that uh, prosecutors aren't up against uh, an opponent in a grand jury. They're in the room of the grand jury by themselves, and there's this uh, there's a famous saying today that a prosecutor uh, can indict a ham sandwich if she wants one. Uh, but that was not the case uh, uh, in. Uh, in 1921 in Birmingham when Joe Tate went into the grand jury and asked a group of men uh, to indict uh, their neighbor, Reverend Edwin Stevenson, for first-degree murder. Uh, eventually, the grand jury did indict Stevenson uh, and uh, for murder. But the indictment that they returned was for second-degree murder instead of first-degree murder, which was premeditated murder and would have carried out a, a death sentence, potentially. Uh, if he had been convicted of that. And so that was one of the earliest signs that this this case uh, would be contested. Um, another uh, problem that the prosecutor noticed right away was that his star witness, his intended star witness, Ruth Stevenson, Ruth herself, was was quickly being vilified in the press, the local press at the time. This story, uh, was a national sensation at the time that it occurred uh, the uh, although anti-catholicism was a very common thing during this this period as I said it was also no everyday event that a a, an, a Methodist minister would shoot and kill a Catholic priest over the marriage of his 18 year old daughter and so the newspapers across the country picked up on, on this story and they followed it from the, the day of the shooting through the conclusion Of the trial of Edmund Stevenson later in October uh, of 1921. Uh, And uh, many of those news reports uh, focused on Ruth Stevenson and her decision to defy her parents' wishes and to marry Pedro Guzman um, against their advice. Uh, And uh, many of them also. Uh, began reporting about Ruth Stevenson's earlier attraction to Catholicism. She had been uh, interested in converting to Catholicism for some years. Uh, she, in fact, had, a couple of months before she married Pedro, had secretly converted to Catholicism. She, she slipped away and she uh, was baptized, a, a Catholic, against her parents' uh, wishes uh, in May of the same year. She kept it a secret from her parents as long as she could, but uh, it eventually they, they found out about it, and some pretty horrific things happened inside of her household, um, as her father attempted to convince her that even if the law gave her the right to choose her own religion once she turned 18, that didn't mean that her family, that her father in particular, was going to be accepting of her decision uh, to, uh, to abandon her rightful uh, religion. Uh, the, uh, and, uh, and so uh, she subsequently told of, um, of beatings that she took from her father as he uh, made her uh, promise that she would not go forward with her intention of being a, a Catholic. And so all of that happened. Um, shortly before the day that she decided to, to marry Pedro, so the newspapers were, were beginning to report about this. In uh, particular, the newspapers in, in Alabama, this is the biggest story of of, of the day. Uh, Pedro and Ruth, Ruth were front page news. And so uh, she was uh, being vilified in in the press because the reporters of the day, like her parents, couldn't understand any of the decisions that she made. Why, when Catholicism was so hated in the country, would she be attracted to it? Why would she defy the good guidance of her parents in the way in which that she did Uh, This was also a time where you could see in those news reports the powerful patriarchal and gender expectations of the day. Young um, girls, uh, daughters of the South, were expected to follow uh, the instructions of uh, their parents, particularly their fathers. Uh, And so Ruth's defiance um, was seen as, uh, uh, well, uh, indefensible uh, rebellion, uh, teenage rebellion uh, by uh, this 18 this, uh, year old. And that's the way that she was being characterized in, in the press accounts of her. Uh, so that didn't bode well for the prosecutor either. And finally, one of the things that, that uh, began to happen right away uh, was uh, that the Ku Klux Klan uh, began to circle the wagons around Reverend Edwin Stevenson and to, uh, to raise money for his defense. Uh, they had enormous success at doing it. They, run, they ran fundraising drives across the state of Alabama uh, and easily raised all the, all the money that was needed to pay for uh, his lawyers. And they hired his lead attorney, uh, a young man uh, at that time named Hugo Black. Now Hugo Black, some of you may know, would go on to reach the greatest heights that lawyers uh, probably can reach in, in, in our profession. He would eventually be nominated to the United States Supreme Court, uh, and he would serve as a, as a uh, as associate justice of the, of the court for decades uh, before his, his death. Uh, before that, he was elected to the United States Senate from the state of Alabama. But at the time that he agreed, to represent Reverend Edwin Stevenson, he was still a young man, a young lawyer in Birmingham, making a name for himself. In this case, would do a lot for his reputation um, in uh, in that state. That would help him later on as he sought a, a seat on the U.S. Senate and uh, and later on uh, an appointment to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, so he agreed to to uh, to represent Edwin Stevenson uh, and. Uh, I, uh, I, I don't have, I, I want to leave some time for, for questions that you guys might have about it, but I, I do want to read you one part of the trial that made it very clear uh, that uh, the defense decided as a strategic matter uh, to put uh, Catholicism itself on trial um, rather as a part of its defense strategy. Uh, so uh, let me read you a little bit uh, from the, uh, the testimony that was given by Mary Stevenson, the wife, uh, of Reverend Edwin Stevenson, mother of Ruth Stevenson, who was called during the defense case uh, to help, uh, help the effort to acquit her husband. When Hugo Black called Mary Stevenson to the stand later that day, Little question could have remained that the lawyer intended to put the Catholic Church itself on trial. He moved quickly through the preliminaries. Was she the defendant's wife? How long had they been married? How many children did they have? How old was Ruth at the time of this trouble? And reached the crux of the case in a matter of seconds. What church do you belong to, Mrs. Stevenson? Methodist. Have you ever belonged to the Catholic? No, sir. So far as you know, have any of your people ever belonged to the Catholic? No, sir. Black asked if she and her husband, Edwin, had been having trouble with their daughter Ruth over the question of religion. They had, Mary Stevenson said, and she told the jury about having to enlist the help of police chief, Shirley, to get the girl back from the Catholic Fred Bender's house one day when she ran off there. And she told the jury about taking Ruth away to Texas to visit some of her family, and how Ruth had escaped from the train at Texarkana on their their way back home. Where did you find her? Hugo Black asked. Found her in a Catholic hospital, came Mary Stevenson's terse reply. Black turned to the day of the shooting and asked how she and Edwin had come to know that their daughter was missing again. A friend had called their home from the department store where Ruth was working at the time and told them that Ruth had not returned after lunch. So Edwin went to the store to get more information and Mary had called police chief T.J. Shirley for help, she said. Had they known Ruth had run off to get married? No sir, they had not. They hadn't any idea that Ruth and Pedro were even involved with each other. They knew the paper hanger, but no. He had never come to visit Ruth at the house. Hugo Black dwelled a while longer on the fact that Ruth Stevenson had kept her parents in the dark about her relationship with Guzman. Many of the jurors were family men with children still at home, the kind of men unlikely to bless a child's silent acts of defiance. Did you let him come there? No, sir. She hadn't had any idea that Guzman had been showing Ruth any attention at all. He had only come to the house to hang some wallpaper. Without directly asking, Black pointed out a reason Edwin and Mary Stevenson would have had to resist Ruth's relationship with Pedro had the girl been less secretive. Did you know whether he was Greek or Puerto Rican or Dago? asked the lawyer, or what he was? The popular slur passed through his lips without a whiff of conscience. "'I looked at him as a servant,' Mary Stevenson said dismissively. "'Half Greek!' Hugo Black left the answer, "'half Greek, hang in the air,' though a natural next question "'might reasonably have been, "'what thought you about the other half, Mrs. Stevenson?' "'Black had a plan to come back to that later, "'at a moment when its impact could be used to maximum effect. "'Could he talk English?' not that I could hardly understand," she said. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of uh, the kind of direct examination that was used during the trial of, uh, in the defense of Reverend Edwin Stevenson. And it gives you an idea of if something like that was was being engaged in by uh, a, a trial attorney, how accepting the community was at that time of that kind of strategy uh, he, these were these were words from a lawyer that he didn't even hesitate uh, to say at the time which gives us a really uh, a good idea of uh, what was common uh, and uh, not even uh, you know worthy of uh, hesitation on the part of an attorney like like Hugo Barra. so uh, so that was a little bit of, of the trial strategy now uh, I, I hope some of you actually might want to read this book yourself, and so I won't tell you what happened uh, at uh, this, this trial. will let you, uh, if you do decide to read it uh, for yourselves, discover that y- yourself. There's many, many moments of, of this trial, which is the focus of, of the book, the last part of, of, of the book, uh, that uh, are, uh, are really amazingly revealing. About who we were, what we were afraid of, what our most important commitments were uh, at, at that at that time, to allow this defense strategy to uh, take uh, the the tone uh, that that it it did. Um, uh, I also, you know, before I, I stop for, for any questions that you guys might have about the, the research that went into this or the the, the way. Uh, that I wrote it. I just want to talk a little bit about uh, the style of it, because as you can see from the excerpts that I read, I hope, that I decided to write this in the narrative. Uh, and uh, that was intentionally to make it accessible to that broader audience that I thought might be interested in this this historic uh, true story that somehow we forgot about, uh, which is a little bit remarkable given the fact that a future Supreme Court Justice would be the lead attorney for Reverend Edwin Stevenson and the fact that it was covered by newspapers across the country at, 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 this, at this time. But it, it as our history does so often, um, it quickly um, uh, fell away from us uh, and our, our memory banks. And, and the only uh, place that I found it even talked about when I began my research for the book was uh, in biographies of Hugo Black. Um, and mentioned mostly in passing, uh, and certainly no no book written about the event itself. Uh, and so that that uh, gave me the incentive to 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 write it myself. Um, I'll I'll stop uh, I'll stop there and take whatever questions that you guys might have about.
0: it. can I clarify
1: now? Uh, Reverend Stevenson was black. Reverend Edwin Stevenson was white. Uh, uh, James Coyle was white. Um, uh, James Coyle was actually a native of Ireland. He was born and raised in Ireland. Uh, He finished his education in Rome. Uh, He was ordained in Rome, and he was sent over to uh, Alabama to begin his priesthood when he was just barely in his 20s. Uh, The state was in great need of priests uh, at that time, Catholic priests, because uh, there were a number of jobs that were attracting large numbers of Catholics into the state uh, at that time. And so he began his priesthood in uh, in Mobile and then was sent to Birmingham when he was a little bit older to uh, be the lead priest for St. Paul's. Catholic Church, which is a a cathedral now a beautiful church, actually uh, depicted on the front of this, uh, the the book itself, Uh, St. Paul's is uh, on the same block that the courthouse was uh, that uh, is pictured here. Uh, where the trial of Reverend Edward Stevenson would take place and in between those two massive buildings on on Third avenue in Birmingham was the the rectory the home where James coyle lived and, and where the shooting occurred so all of this took place right on on, on this this block in, in Birmingham and this buildings
0: still there.
1: The, um, st- the cathedral is still there, it is gorgeous. Uh, so if you ever get down to Birmingham, I encourage you to, to go and, and, and to go inside it. The courthouse, sadly, uh, like so many historic buildings, uh, was torn down and you know, replaced by a new, uh, a new building, uh, courthouse in, in Birmingham, uh, which is really a shame because it was, it was quite uh, a uh, architectural feat uh, itself. I'm oh, sorry, what did your research
0: entail, and did, were you able to interview
1: any of Well, uh, my, my research uh, it led me to Birmingham, Alabama and other places in, in Alabama more times than I ever imagined I would be there in my life. Um, this kind of research was different uh, for law professors. Usually, you know, we're able to find most of what we need. Um, electronically these days, and, and uh, or from old law books that are generally kept in a, in a fine law library like the ones that, that we have here, but because this is an old historical story, the information about it was really located in archives, uh, archival libraries uh, in, uh, in Alabama, but lucky for me, this event actually happened when it did in 1921, which was a period before commercial radio, before television. And so this is a time when a city the size of Birmingham, Alabama, would, would it wouldn't be unusual to have three large newspapers operating at the same time. Uh, that was the case in Birmingham, um, one issuing uh, morning e- editions, issues of, of the newspaper, two afternoon e- editions. And so because this was the huge story that it was, every day, those newspapers were writing articles or uh, publishing articles about this event, the parties involved. And so uh, that was, was a great uh, help to me uh, in uh, getting details, the kind of details that are really necessary to write the book in the narrative, to give it, to bring it back to, to life in, uh, uh, with the kind of detail that uh, is required to, to, to do that. So, so I was lucky, actually. It also, I mean, uh, there's downsides, because it meant that everybody who was directly involved in the story was no longer alive. Um, I did do some interviews of some uh, wonderful uh, ladies uh, who were at that time in their late 80s, 90s, one gentleman who was over 100 years old who were young Catholic children at the time, living in Birmingham, Alabama, who, who explained to me, described to me what it was like to be Catholic um, at a time uh, when the Catholics were being targeted so openly by members of the Klan and other uh, members of this community at that time. And that was helpful uh, to me just for the, the background, for my, my understanding of, of the social uh, context in which this event occurred. Uh, so, uh, I, I did interview them, and uh, I, I uh, was lucky to find um, a grandson of the prosecutor, um, Joe Tate's uh, grandson, who spent some time talking to me about him, and, and that gave me a, good, a better idea about who he was uh, and, uh, and some of the family stories about, about him. I also interviewed Hugo Black's son who was, by that point, in his 80s, uh, living in Miami, Florida, and I took a trip down there to talk to him about his father and, uh, and uh, whether he remembered anything about uh, his father's talking about this, this particular uh, case. Uh, and so that was, that was helpful to me as well. But all of the people who were directly involved in the story were no longer alive to talk about. Um, uh, Ruth, Pedro, Jotay, uh, the other, de- the other defense attorneys Hugo Black, uh, and uh, and so on. So, uh, so I was. Uh, it took, uh, as a result of that, it took a-, a long time to really get all the information that I needed to to write it in the way that I I did. Three years to research uh, the book, and another two years to write it. Were you able to like, tease apart? Yeah, you know, it, it, was all, it was all in the mix together. Really amazing, and you could, you could see that a little bit from that excerpt of the, the direct examination of Mary Stevenson by Hugo Black when he, when he says really derisively, you know, was he Greek, Puerto Rican, you know, was he you know, Dago? Dago was a term that was used, you know, in everyday uh, uh, conversation. Um, came up a lot in the transcripts. You know, it was it was really the transcripts. Um, I was also I'm lucky uh, to to get a hold of uh, were incredibly revealing. That this was a period of time where, you know, race. We always we, we associate Birmingham, Alabama with race, uh, and it is it was that. Uh, but uh, there was so much more uh, going on during this period. The anti-religious, well anti-Semitic and anti-Catholic in particular uh, uh, atmosphere was, uh, was just so so palpable uh, and the nativist uh, uh, atmosphere, uh, the anti-immigrant atmosphere that existed there uh, uh, was evident from many and, and, and I did, you, you could see it throughout this story because it was all of a piece uh, uh, in this, and that's one of the reasons why I actually was as interested in this story as I, I was, because it was so revealing that there were so many other things going on uh, at, the, at the same time, whether it was gender, uh, whether it was anti-immigrant sentiments, anti-religious sentiments. Race then becomes uh, an issue during the course of the trial, too, um, as uh, as that uh Direct examination of Mary Stevenson hinted uh, that it, it might uh, as, as well. So it was all in there t- t- together, uh, and uh, that uh, that turned out to make this story of interest to uh, to a, a, a very. Broad and different uh, communities. So I've talked about this and given readings of this, this book now to Catholic audiences, uh, to groups of lawyers, uh, to uh, women's groups, uh, to uh, groups that are, are uh, very interested in uh, race uh, and ethnicity and uh, and uh, nativism in in America as as well. So. Uh, this story uh, just has has so many different things threading through it that I, I, I think um, uh, makes it of interest to a lot of different audiences as well. Are there any other questions, Sal? Yeah? Um, I thought that you
0: said something about how uh, other secret organizations
1: The Masons uh, were definitely, and I and I speak to that a little bit in, in here, and uh, uh, there was a group at that at this time, um, a very secretive group called simply the True Americans. And they called themselves the True Americans, all male um, fraternal organization, uh, very secretive, but uh, they, uh, they were an anti-Catholic organization. And so, uh, so, yeah, this, you know, in the, and not only were so many groups, fraternal organizations like the Masons and others at this time um, uh, anti-Catholic, uh, but uh, you, you, could, you could just see it everywhere. And that's the biggest surprise of this story to readers of this book has been the intensity of the anti-Catholicism. People didn't know about that, even Catholics didn't know about that. And I, I had to say, I was raised Catholic. I thought I knew a little bit about uh, anti-Catholicism in, in America, but what I remembered uh, studying about it when I was in high school or so, uh, was about an earlier period, the 1850s, 1840s, 1850s, when the know-nothings uh, were, uh, were a big force uh, in, in, uh, in our country. Uh, but not so much this period. So that turns out to be uh, the the big surprise of, of Rising Road was just how open and unapologetic that um, anti-Catholic feeling uh, was. Uh, and so, you know, as a, as somebody who was raised Catholic, that that um, that was interesting uh, to me. Um, but. Um, as a, as a lawyer, it was particularly interesting to me to see that anti-Catholicism reflected not just in the existence of these organizations, but in law itself. At this time, there were laws that a number of states had passed, like Alabama, uh, that were called convent inspection laws. And people don't even remember these laws existed. I was shocked when I learned about them because I had never heard about them before when I was doing the research for this book. And I talked to a lot of Catholic priests uh, about these convent inspection laws. Nobody remembered that they even existed. What these laws were, were they were laws that were passed that allowed state officials to go into Catholic-owned buildings, like convents, monasteries, even Catholic-run hospitals, uh, rectories, churches, and to look through those those buildings without a warrant, without prior notice, without a warrant for people who would be held against their will there, like young women like Ruth Stevenson who might have been seduced into uh, into uh, Catholicism and then held there to be preyed upon by lustful priests, or more importantly, for stashes of weapons because the, a common accusation leveled against Catholics at this time were Catholics were actually going to, were planning an insurrection against the United States. That they were using their basements to stockpile weapons, ammunition, arms, for the day that their leader, the Pope in Rome, would give the sign for the insurrection to begin. And that, so that's what these inspectors were looking for and that's what these laws uh, reflected, that the genuine nature of the fear that Catholics, the Knights of Columbus, Knights of Columbus, that Catholic male organization, were, were supposedly the foot soldiers of, of the Pope. Now I say this today, people, everybody, I always laugh. They just laugh. My students can't understand, they laugh. And, and, I, and I understand it because it seems so ludicrous to us today that that would be the case, but, but one thing that shows us how deadly serious it actually was and how widespread the fear actually was was the existence of those laws. Those laws never would have passed in state legislature after state legislature if those states weren't afraid uh, that, that, that Catholics posed a genuine threat to the United States, and during a period of time when when patriotism was being demanded, as it always is during a time of war, this was right around the time of World War I, uh, and organizations that were rebranding themselves as patriotic organizations like the Ku Klux Klan, it's no accident that this is a period of time when those kinds of laws uh, come into place. Catholics were said not to be able to be true Americans to be patriots. They couldn't be patriotic to the United States because they owed their allegiance to a foreign leader, the Pope, in Rome. And so this was the accusation that was made widely against uh, against them and was reflected in the positive laws that were passed by a number of states uh, at, at this time. Pretty scary business, right? But it does make us think, I mean, if we can laugh about laws like that, or beliefs like that, or fears like that today, it's because we no longer are so fearful of that particular religion. But it does uh, it does cause us to think, maybe, uh, about other religions that we might be fearful of, that might be reflected in the way in which we approach those religions today. So even if uh, the names have changed, uh, stories like this, I hope, you know, make us a little more humble uh, about our law uh, and about our fear and the power that fear has over us to maybe even create a legal defense to the killer of an unarmed priest. I sent it to him, he's, he's never gotten back to me about it. Um, I imagine he, he read it, he knew that I was writing it. They weren't happy, That's, as you might imagine. Uh, they weren't happy that I was gonna write this book about this particular trial, because it doesn't show you go black off to uh, in, a, in a positive way. Uh, and uh, that was an unhappy thing for many fans of Hugo Black. I mean, if you know anything about Hugo Black's life, you'll know that when he eventually went on to the United States Supreme Court, he was there for a decade. Um, he uh, eventually became uh, a champion of civil rights in the country, the author of a number of the most important civil rights decisions the United States Supreme Court has ever uh, handed down. Uh, And so by the end of his life, he had won many fans. And one of the reasons why he had so many fans was because of his movement away from uh, what people expected him to bring to the United States Supreme Court when he was appointed uh, earlier in his life and where he ended up uh, personally um, as a jurist by the end of his life. Uh, It's it's part of the reason why I decided to call this book Rising Road. Was because of sort of that. Some, you know, think of this as a, as a metaphor of like our journey, you know. And as a nation, as this this person, one individual, Hugo Black, where you begin and where you end up. Hopefully, I, I, I hope that uh, that this story really because we can laugh now about those laws that existed in the back the backdrop of this story that that means that our journey along that road has been an ascending one, a rising one, uh, and one maybe that we can even take some lessons away from today. and much later, and decades later, we still see anti-Catholicism in the country at the time that President um, John F. Kennedy is, is elected, and many people thought, seems sort of like what, uh, many people thought when Barack Obama was running for, for president, um, was that JFK would never be elected president because the country wasn't yet ready to elect a Catholic into the Oval Office. Well, that turned out not to be true, and that turned out to be the time when we would, but there, but the fact that so many people believed that they weren't tells us that anti-Catholicism was still very present in, in America at the time that he was elected. He, he had to address his Catholicism in a public speech in exactly the same way that Barack Obama had to, to address openly in a public speech that he gave in Pennsylvania, you guys might remember, about his race, right? So it really, I mean, the parallels actually across time are, are, are really uh, interesting uh, to me in, in that way. But, but one way that we know that even that we've moved away from where we were when JFK was elected is that today, many people forget that, uh, that six of the nine uh, justices of the United States Supreme Court today are Catholic. There are no Protestants. On the United States Supreme Court today, that is stunning, and it never would have been possible at the time that this story occurred, which was really not so long ago, if you think about it, 1921. So, so we have come a long way when it comes to anti-Catholicism. If uh, a majority uh, of the uh, justices sitting on the court today can be Catholic, without people even, you know, actually being aware or or thinking But, uh, but that's right, it was a part of everyday life then. Well, any other questions? Well, thank you very much.